shared, um, the way we worship has changed is because you have changed us. All of us who are once very cold and religiously indifferent towards you, Father, have begun to spring life and have begun to recognize the greatness and the intimacy of who you are, and that leads to proper worship, and we are just witnesses of that. These miracles, these changes have happened in our lives because your word was faithfully preached here in this pulpit, not by my own design, but by your grace. So we are here underneath your word again. We pray for the same empowering, same persuasive empowering of the Spirit of God so that these words will be true to us and we will start to conform in accordance to your words. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you know, um, we took a break from our studies in the Sermon on the Mount for four weeks or so um, to study together about evangelism, and I think it was very good. Now we are back to our studies on the Sermon on the Mount. And today we are going to specifically talk about giving, right? How it is the Christians, every Christian's, I don't want to say duty, the reason for every Christian's existence is to give, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we talk about giving in particular, let us go back to why we're studying the Sermon on the Mount in the first place. We are studying the Sermon on the Mount because it is in these sermons Jesus describes what a Christian looks like. These verses are Jesus' description of the internal reality of the Christian as well as the external behavior of the Christian. Once again, many of us have an idea of what a Christian, Christ, what a Christian looks like. The reason we're studying this is to, so that we can study from Jesus' word himself of what a Christian should look like, right? And so I think the theme of the last couple of weeks is cracked hearts, right? I had this vision about God cracking our hearts. And Sermon on the Mount in particular is about what a cracked heart looks like, right? Salvation is about God penetrating the prideful heart and heart of ours, and he cracks it open, and he starts to infuse his word and his spirit inside of us. That's what a Christian is, right? These hardened shells that we have, God cracks it open, and his word and his spirit goes in. Sermon on the Mount describes what a, crack, a person with a cracked heart, what a person with this Holy Spirit inside of them, what they look like, right? One of the things that the, Jesus says, the first thing that you will know whether you are you have a person with a cracked heart is if you are poor in spirit. What does that mean? Before I tell you what that means, I think I did a sermon illustration a couple of, like last year. So like the Gospel Coalition, God bless them, do a book review. I don't have time to read all books. I just read book reviews. And there's this book review, this book called Gay Girl, Good God. Very catchy title. And as the, as the title suggested, it is written by a young African-American, once identified as homosexual woman, writing this book about her moving away from homosexuality to embrace God. And what struck me about that book review is how she described her conversion. And she, she said, before I met God, I had a very deep understanding of my needs and wants and a very shallow understanding of who God is. But after the conversion, I have a deepening understanding of who God is. 
And as my shallow understanding of God turns into a deeper knowledge of God, I begin to see everything in a new light, including my desires. That's a pretty dope. Do, do you, young people say, still, say dope? That's a pretty it's okay. That's a pretty dope way of describing what a cracked heart looks like. Once your understanding of God was shallow, but now it's deepened. And when your understanding of God deepens, the first thing that happens to you is you become poor in spirit. What does that mean? When you start to understand, look at God deeply, and when you look at yourself, you realize that you and God are totally different. God is holy and you're not. And you discover that it is, it is the most unnatural thing in the world for God to call you his child. And yet, by crazy grace, he calls you his child. <gasps> so much joy. And as your deepening of understanding of God deepens, as you're discovering that you're poor in spirit, and yet God accepts you as child, when, when the next thing happens to you is you begin to mourn over your sins. The sins that didn't bother you before, now that you have a deeper understanding of God, you, you understand what sin is, and you are so mournful over your sins. So, like, I was uh, listening to, you know, radio back, the, like, you know, on my way back from work to home, and I was listening to an interview by a stand-up comedian, like a female stand-up comedian, and she was, like, jokingly described her, like, previous relationships with men and stuff. And I was like listening to her. She was joking around. But the truth that she was conveying was basically all their previous boyfriends, they weren't horrible men, but they pretty much used her sexually. Right? And she wasn't raped or she wasn't, like, there wasn't any inappropriate, you know, sexual behavior. But she says most of the time when she was doing sex, it was to please that guy. That was more or less why she was doing it. And she was expressing in a joking way. But when I listened to it, I wanted to cry. Because that's, it, see, that's what, a lust, that's what lust is, right? It is a use, dehumanizing using of someone, right? And when you begin to have a deeper understanding of God, especially dudes, you begin to understand that's what you have inside of you. And it starts to bother you. That's what happens when you have a deepening understanding of God. Your understanding of sin becomes clear. And when you have a clear mind understanding of your sin, you begin to mourn over your sins. And yet, even though you're mournful of your sins, you understand that's why Jesus had to die for you and forgive you. And when you understand that is the reason Jesus has died for you and forgive you, you are filled with such joy. So the gospel is, you're mourning, and yet you're joyful. My wife heard one of my sermons, and she says, when I listen to your preach, I feel so bad, and yet I feel so good. I go, that's right. That's right. You feel so bad, and yet you feel so good, because the mourning of your sins also results in the fact that you know you're forgiven, and that's awesome. What happens after that? After, what happens after you know that you've been forgiven, mourning over your sins? You become merciful. The mercy that you receive from Christ, you want to show to other people. And another thing that happens to you is you become meek. You know what meekness is? Meekness basically is, God, you're in control. I don't know what, I'm not in control. You're right, I'm wrong. I have no idea what's going to happen. I let you take control. That's what meekness is. And meekness only develops 
when you understand that God is great, and yet he's also very loving to you. I'll give you an example. Yeah, she's not here. I told her I'm going to tell her to tell, share, share the story to you. And okay, she said, I got permission. So good old Louisa. Remember Louisa? Testimony, Easter, everyone cried. Remember her? Yeah. So she is not of this country, right? You know, right? She's not of the country. And she never really had a job here. But she recently got her like, you know, employment card, right? God bless her. And she was like trying to look for a job. But there wasn't any job out there, right? And then, like, a couple of weeks ago, someone called her for a job interview, and she went. And the interview went really well. And they loved her, and they said, I'm going to give you a job. She said, oh, cool, thank you, she says. And Greg, her husband, you know, every husband will identify. If your wife says, I got a job, in our hearts, we joy. We're joyful. (laughs) Yes. When my wife says, you know, I got another piano teaching gig, my heart says, yes. Right? Right? You know, you know, you know, let's be honest, right, you know. And so it was all happy, happy, joy, joy. But there was a caveat. And the caveat was she had to work some Sundays. And in her heart, she says something was not right. And she said, nope, I'm not going to work for that job. She told them no. She told them, no, I'm not going to work on I'm, I have to come to church, even though she's not here, ironically. So, you know what I mean? And so... It's, it's, and so Good, good reasons, I would imagine, right? But she says she wasn't going to work because on, on, on Sunday because she needs to honor God on Sunday. That's meekness. She says, I have no idea when the next job interview is going to come. All I know is I want to do what God wants me to do. And I'm going to let him take control. That's meekness. And why could she be meek? You know why? Remember her testimony? Because God is great. Jesus was so merciful and forgiving because Jesus Christ gave her life. Remember the 20-minute testimony that she was crying and you all are crying? Because she knows God has forgiven her and because God is good and Christ loved her so much. She can trust Christ with the job. That's what happens when you have a cracked heart. You become meek and trustworthy. And another thing that happens to a meek, cracked heart, is you become hungry and thirsty for righteousness. What what is righteousness? Righteousness is the character of God. Righteousness is who God is. God is right all the time. You know the old... The Christian slogan that makes me cringe a lot, God is good all the time, right? That one, right? We should say God is righteous, and you should say all the time. God is righteous. What he does is right. And hungry and thirsty for righteousness is a desire to live in accordance to the right standard of God, to reflect his righteousness in our lives. A cracked-hearted person wants to live like that. What does that have to do with, good, with giving? It has everything to do with giving because if righteousness is reflecting God's character, because God is God who gives and who is generous, a righteous person desires to emulate that, giving, like that generosity of God into, 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 into everyone in their lives. A person who is hungry and thirsty for righteousness desires to be generous, to reflect God's generosity in their lives. 
That's one of their main priorities in life, to be generous just as God is generous. Y'all, God is so generous that kid agrees. God is generous. God is gracious. How do you know? The whole Bible is basically about God's generosity. Right? Other gods, other religions, right? You need to serve, 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 give, give, give for that God to bless. No, our God, the God of the Bible, the real God, the living God, is a God who is generous, who gives. From the first page of Genesis chapter 1 to the last page of Revelations, God is a God who gives. He is generous. What are some examples of God's generosity? Keep our reality right now. Our reality right now. We are here listening to good old PJ preach. We are here, you know, together. We exist. We can speak. We have things. We have reality. Why do we have reality? Because God made the world and you out of nothing. Creation is an expression of his generosity. All of you are examples, living, breathing examples of his generosity. How is God's generosity also expressed? By not killing, the fact that we are alive and not dead because of our sins. The fact that despite of our sins, the fact that we are living, breathing, listening to this and still walking despite our sins is evidence of God's generosity. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. God says, the whole earth is yours. Subdue the earth, right? I give you wisdom. The whole earth is yours. Do as you will. But don't do that one thing. Don't eat that fruit from that tree. That's all you need to do. Do not eat from that tree. That's all you need to do. Adam and Eve says, oh, no, thank you. We're going to eat. The rebellion of Adam and Eve, the natural result, consequence of that rebellion is death. But God, doesn't kill, God didn't kill them. God banished them, but he let them live. And not only that, through their seed, Jesus Christ is born, and through Christ, the world is redeemed. The fact that men and mankind has not been snuffed out is expression of God's generosity. Not only that, God is generous with his people. Look at the Old Testament accounts from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Everyone is Israel. Old Testament is a living, breathing example of how God takes care of his people. The people of God, the church, are also examples of how God generously provides for his people. Embrace ministry is an example of how God generously provides for his people. The fact that y'all, the way that y'all worship has changed is an example of his generosity. God gives all the time. He never asks. He gives all the time. And that is so true. I was listening to a sermon by John Piper about this guy named George Mueller. You know George Mueller? He's a guy, right, who started an orphanage, right? He's a guy, he's, he's a man who's, who's known for his prayers. God answered 10,000 of his prayers, he wrote. And what he's known for was not only the fact that he answered, God answered 10,000 of his prayers, he's also known for the fact that he started orphanage, and he took care of 10,000 orphans, right? So only kids who lost both parents can go to his orphanage. If you have one living parent, you're not qualified for that orphanage. So he accepted kids who had no one. 
And his, and his mission and, and his orphanage model was this. He says, I'm not going to ask for anyone for anything. I'm just going to pray for all their needs. He never directly asked money from anyone. And his, his example of his orphanage is God provided. Even though he never asked anyone for any money, any help, God somehow moved and the orphans, 10,000 orphans were provided. He gives one story. One said, he said on one Sunday, right? The 300 orphan, orphans, right? Who had no mama, who had no daddy, right? Who had no mama and daddy to take them Chuck E. Cheese, right? Like, no Chuck E. Cheese kids on Sunday morning were hungry. And they ran out of food. 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning, they ran out of food, no Chuck E. Cheese kids. And one kid goes, we're hungry. George Miller goes, let me pray. So he goes to his room, and he prays. And he reminds God of his generosity. And he thanked God for giving them breakfast, even though he had no idea where breakfast was going to come from. He says, yeah, I know you love these orphans. You have promised to take care of your people, and I thank you for the breakfast that has come my way. Amen. After he prayed, opened the door. The baker comes with, with a cart full of bread, and he says, I don't know what happened, but yesterday I was baking bread, and I think God was telling me to bake more bread and give it to you. This is just one of 10,000 stories that Mueller writes about. And he says the reason why he started orphanage, and this is what offended Piper, he says, that George Mueller says the reason he started the orphanage was not because of the orphans. He says orphans were just a tool to show the world that God provides for his people. Piper was kind of a little offended by that, right? They were just instruments, tools to show the world, to show the people of God that God answers prayers, that God provides for his people. And he succeeded. Through Mueller's life, God shows the world of his generosity. Righteousness, y'all, are reflecting this generous nature of God because we have received so much from him. The call is to reflect his goodness to the people, to, 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 to everyone around you. And this is best seen in the life of David. First Chronicles 29. Are you ready? First Chronicles 29. Whew. No? Didn't get that email? Okay, so, First Chronicles 29. Okay, what, what's happening in First Chronicles 29? First Chronicles 29, David is building, constructing the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem. And to construct that temple, he goes all in on his personal treasures and possessions. Remember the scene in like, you know, every gambling movie? You know, at the end, like you, you sit and you get the hand, you go, I'm going all in. David goes all in with his treasure. From his personal stash to the treasure of Israel, he gives it all to construct this temple. Right? I, think, I don't think Sean Stark would have been proud of him because there was no reserve funds. Right? He was going anti-Sean Stark. Right? He was going all in. Why did David go all in? This is his prayer. Let's read together. Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. 
Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come to, from you, and of all your own have you not given you. What he's basically saying is, David is saying, he's going all in. Why? Because everything belongs to God. Everything that he has, everything that Israel has, it all belongs to God. God gave it to them. So none of it is mine. I'm just giving back to you what is yours. David is simply reflecting the generosity that God has shown him in Israel. That's what David is doing. He's going all in. He's going anti-Sean Stark because everything God has given him. And he's simply reflecting that generosity by the building of the temple. Why do you give because God has been generous with you. I'm expecting our offering to go up next week, by the way. That's what happens. When you receive, when you know that you receive the grace from God, the most natural thing happens to you is you want to reflect that generosity towards God and to the people around you. That's why you give, you know. But good old Pharisees, oh, Right? They didn't do that. Jesus, in, in today's scripture, talks about the right way of giving and the wrong way of giving. And the Pharisees are an example of the wrong way of giving. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's, um, verse 2, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and the streets. The hypocrites that Jesus was talking about in verse 2 were the religious leaders. What were the religious leaders doing? First of all, the religious leaders were trying to do righteous acts. Right? In the Old Testament, God gives clear commandments to, for everyone to give their money to help the needy. And that is a clear commandment. But you know what the Old Testament, you know what the Pharisees did? They took this commandment of God, right? And rather than understanding they should be giving to poor people to reflect God's generosity to them, rather than having an understanding of why God is commanding them, you know what they did? They just codified it. They, they, they took this like, command and they made codes based on it. How much to give? When to give? Right? What do you do to give? They codified it. They missed the point of why God wanted them to be generous. They totally missed the point. They, all they knew was this is something they need to do. Therefore, if they do it, God's going to be pleased with them. They missed the point. They missed the point all the time. That's why Jesus was so against them. They missed the point of God's commandments all the time. That's what they're, they're experts at misunderstanding God. For example, the fourth commandment. What is the fourth commandment? Please, what is the fourth commandment? 
Thank God, Ricky. Ricky, you're my favorite, right? So, you know what I mean? So, like, fourth commandment is honor the Sabbath, right? Why does God want his people to honor the Sabbath? Just take a day off, take a nap? No. For one day of the week, for you to come where you are right now and to remember who God is and to be marveled at who God is. That's how you rest, Right? To remember the generosity and the majesty of God. That's how you're supposed to, that's the purpose of Sabbath. But these turkeys, Pharisees, okay, God wants us to obey the Sabbath. Let's make codes. Okay, so God says rest. Then what's the definition of rest? Rest is not working. Then you shouldn't work, right? Then the question is, what is the definition of work? How much leg, how much, how much Arm can you lift in order to constitute work? How much can you, can you walk in order to constitute work? They were codifying this commandment. They missed the commandment altogether because they thought as long as they obey these codes, like a computer programmer, then they're really keeping the Sabbath. You know why they wanted Jesus to die? Because Jesus, on the Sabbath, healed a sick man. What better way to honor, remember God's love and glory by healing a sick man, right? Jesus was honoring the Sabbath by healing that dead man, that sick man. But these Pharisees, oh, he's violating our code. Oh, right? He's not supposed to heal, he's healing. Oh. They're missing the point of the Sabbath by just focusing on their codes. And this is the attitude that they showed when they, were, when they were giving to the needy. They didn't care about God, the reason why God wanted to help them, help God wanted them to help the poor, which is to reflect his generosity. All they cared about was codifying their behavior. They were not interested in glorifying God. They were interested in obeying a code. But you know what happens when you are not interested in obeying God? What happens to you is, rather than glorifying God with your behavior, if you're just in it to obey a code, what happens to you is, rather than wanting to glorify God with your behavior, you want to start to glorify yourself. It's the strangest thing. Even if you obey a code in the name of God, if the glory of God is not, if the, if the reflection of God's glory is not what you're interested in, you will invariably want to glorify yourself. And that's what these guys are doing. Okay, God wants me to help the poor. I've codified how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to obey it. I don't care about what God's, going to, what, 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 God, what God's purpose is. I'm just going to obey it. That heart wanting to just obey it, that leads to a heart that says, I want to be glorified with my behavior rather than God. That's why. When you are not, glo- to, 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 to simply put if you're not interested in glorifying God with your behavior, you will invariably are in it to glorify yourself. Whether it is good acts or bad acts, if you're not in it to glorify God, you will always be in it to glorify yourself. And that's what these guys are doing. God wanted me to give the poor. Okay, I'll give the poor, but I'll make it known that I'm giving it to the poor. So they made a loud noise. Oh, God, they they lift up loud prayers. Oh, God, thank you for your generosity in my life, and thank you for my kind heart so I can help the poor. They were announcing it when they were giving it to the poor. They were not interested in reflecting, reflecting God's glory. They were only interested in reflecting their own. Like, one of my best friends in the world, Father Mike, right, in Philadelphia, 
he said he had a congregant, a congregation member. Every offering, when the offering basket would go around, he would take out a crisp $100 bill, right? And he would go, every time. You know, like in a big white church setting, right? I don't want to get all racist, but you know, big white church setting, it's like quiet, right? White people are quiet when they get, right? And like, it's all quiet. Ushers come, organ music, oh, no. And that dude. That's what the Pharisees were doing, but in a louder way. They were, they were going to let everyone know that they're generous, they're generous and they're righteous. Why? Because they're in it to glorify themselves. And you see this a lot in modern times, too. And the modern times is social media, right? Social media, right? Oh, social justice warriors. I'm against racism. And they let everyone know that they're against racism, right? I'm against this. Oh, Trump, Trump, Trump is horrible. As if like going against Trump makes them righteous. They're virtue signaling. You know what virtue signaling is? Just by you feel like, just by you're tweeting out something that, that you're saying that you're righteous, basically. Even though, look, going against Trump arguably is not a bad thing. Sorry, Milton, right? <laughs> Sometimes, like, you know, standing for injustice is a good thing. But people are not just satisfied in standing against injustice. they got to let everyone know about it. You know? It's so obnoxious. Yes, fighting injustice is a good thing, but let everyone know about it clearly shows that you're in it for yourself. You're in it for the praise of men. And God says, if you do anything for the sake of getting praise from men, there is no reward for you. If your motive, no matter how good an act it is, if you are doing that good act for the sake of making your name great in the eyes of men and women, it doesn't count in the eyes of God. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you will have no reward in heaven because you have received all the honors on earth. All the riches and all the honor you have received on earth. Therefore, there are no riches or, or, or treasure for you in heaven because you received everything on earth. That's not how Jesus wants us to give. Jesus wants us to give by reflecting the glory of God, generosity of God in our everyday life. He says, do not be like those hypocrites who announce their goodness to everyone. But Jesus says in verse 3, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. What does that mean? What does that mean? Do not, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So there's many, many theories out there, but this I got from John MacArthur, and you know, I think this is right. right? So this is basically a proverb from the, like, during the Jewish, in, in Jewish society during that time. And, the mean, and so this proverb, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, basically the meaning of the proverbs, proverb is this. They say the right hand is the hand of action, right? Like they say in, in, Israel, in Jewish culture, it is a right hand. When you give, when you give, right, you give with your right hand, right? I don't know why, but you give with your right hand. So the right hand is a hand of generosity. It is your check-writing hand, 
right? So when Jesus says, and what the meaning of this proverb is, is let your busy, be so busy with your generous hand that your left hand doesn't, isn't aware, that you're doing so many busy things with this right hand that your left hand is not aware of what you're doing, right? So like, for example, like, let this check writing hand write so many checks. There's a need, check, there's a need, check. You, you write checks so often with your right hand that the left hand doesn't have pro- time to process what you're doing. What Jesus means when he says, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, he's saying, live a life of constant, continuous generosity that the generosity is so embedded in you, right, that, that you don't, you don't have to, half the time remember like, all the generous acts that you do. If you live a life of constant generosity, you don't remember your generous acts. If you are generous once in a while, you will remember exactly when you were generous. You know, two years ago, I gave a check for $1,000. I remember that, right? But if you give a check of $1,000 every, every week, uh, right? If you give a $1,000 check every week, you're not going to remember for the last time you wrote a $1,000 check. He's saying, do not be, let generosity be such embedded in your lifestyle that you're not going to remember what the last generous act you've done because it's such, a, such of your lifestyle. Be so generous that you don't think about it. If there's a need, you just meet it. You don't go, where's my offering going? Do I trust, do I trust the deacons? Do I trust Pastor Jay to, to make wise decisions on my money? Hmm? I want to see the financial records before I contribute to my money. I know some of you thought that. No offense, I'm not offending you. I'm, I kind of am. But like, Jesus is anti that. He's saying, and I'm not saying, like, write your check Joe Austin, right? Right? Because, you know, that's wrong, right? But he's saying, if you're, if you're like, for example, a member of a church, trust the leaders and just give it to God. And you say, what if they misappropriate my funds? Then God's judgment is on them. Be so generous. Look, Saturday morning, what do we have? We have the church-wide what? Bazaar. And we're going to serve coffee, making $200% profit. Our seed money is $20, and we get $200 in return. Sean Stark will love that. But we need people to mind the tables. There's a need. The church has a need. And Jesus says, be generous. Like, submit your time. Don't go, oh, well, Saturdays is my only day off of rest, you know. Um, if I don't rest on Saturday, I'll get tired remainder of the week. Mmm, I don't know. I got small group the night before. Mmm, I got kids and stuff. Oh, I don't know. Stop thinking about it. Just do it, Jesus says. If there's a need, do it. That's your lifestyle, period. That's what a Christian is. Stop being the contemplative Christian of just measuring. Jesus is saying, stop measuring your generosity. Just do it. As the Nike commercial would say. A Christian's life is, is, is not to make a big deal of your generosity because you, you are generous all the time. And why are we called to be generous all the time? Because Jesus Christ is generous with us all the time. Do you know? Only a person who knows the generosity of Jesus Christ can show that generosity as a lifestyle. 
Do you know how generous he is to you? He, he, he was to you, he is to you, and he will be to you? Do you know his generosity? Philippians chapter 2. What did, what did Paul say? Jesus did not, Jesus was God, but he did not, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself a servant. Right? He submitted his life. He submitted to the point of death. He, he, he submitted, he lifted up his life so that what? So that his people can be saved. And because he offered up his life, God lifted his name above every other name. More, so, more than anything else, we are Christians because of the generous sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only his past sacrifice, but his current generosity. Are you aware how generous he is with you? He's always willing to speak to you, to provide for you. He's always, he's always patient with you. He's always leading you. We have Christ. We have God. For the Apostle Paul, he could never get over that. I'm doing my quiet times in, in Acts, and he lived a crazy life. But the, way he, the reason why he lived a crazy life is because he, got ne he never got over the fact that Christ forgave him. He never got over the fact that Christ gave him life. He never got over the fact how Christ is still loving him and leading him and is generous with him. He's never getting, he's never, he, he's not, he, he never, never gets over the fact that there is eternal glory awaiting for him. He's never forgotten of the fact of his Christ's generosity. And therefore, he lives a life of service and giving. He says he's a slave for Christ because Christ has been generous with him. If you are a Christian, you have God. You have Christ. And that is all you need in this world. You have everything that you need and you want and you desire in him. And therefore, the remainder of your life here, you give, you, you live, to live a life of giving and service. You know? Period. And if you live a life of just expenditure, giving, serving, to reflect God's generosity, Jesus says, your God, will, God who sees in secret will reward you in heaven. The heroes of the Bible, how did they die? Apostle Paul, he got executed, right? I think he got hung or poisoned. I forget. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, right? After he died, what has he left in his possession? He has a cloak that he wore to warm him up. He had his letters, right? And maybe he had some, he had, he had like some parchment of the word. That's all he had when he died. George Mueller the man who fed 10,000 orphans. He had nothing when he died. Nothing. My hero is Alistair Beck, and his personal hero was a medical missionary. He's a doctor, and he lived in the fields of, I don't know, mission fields. And when he came back to, 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 to America, the guy didn't have anything. 
he, was, he rented a room in one of his friend's house, and all he had to his name was a New Testament Bible. They had nothing. But what about in heaven? Won't God be so proud of them? Proud of them? Won't their reward in heaven be so great? They had no 401k plan. They, had, they, had no, they have no chateau in, you know, where's God's rating room? Florida? They had nothing. But in the kingdom of God, they have everything. Because this life, they live to give, to reflect the generosity of Jesus Christ. Christian, that is your calling. All of us are called to different spheres. It's true. Right? But no matter what sphere that you call, that he has called you, you are generous. You're, you're supposed to give. I know I talk about the fact that I'm busy all the time, but so I get bitter sometimes. I go, why are you making me so busy? Why can't you give me a government job? I'm not saying all government jobs are cushy, but don't be offended, right? I know, I know, I know, right? But like, I'm so bitter, right? I'm so bitter. Like, why can't you give me an easy, easier job, right? And sometimes I'm so tired. Like the other day, I was working like 14 hours and writing, writing this sermon. And then I had to get up and I got to go to like, you know, pro bono legal clinic because my firm is making me. And sometimes my body just shakes because I'm so tired. Yesterday, I was like, morning, I was, I was, I was like shaking. I like, felt like I was like throwing up because like I was so tired. Maybe I'm going to die soon. Anyway. So you go to a pro bono clinic. And there's this woman from Georgia, not, you know, like south, but there's, evidently there's a country called Georgia. Do you know that? I don't know. I go, Georgia? Atlanta? No, she says, Russian country. I go, ignorant. And I helped her with my legal prowess. Her father passed away last year, and she, doesn't, like, she had all these issues, and I helped her. And she started to cry. She said, thank you. I thought it only made my church people cry. But she cried. And I'm not telling you this. I'm not doing right to show how great I am. But I, in that moment, I knew God has given me this life, this busy life, so I can give. I give to the pro bono clinic. I give to my firm. I give to my family. I give to y'all. It's worth me writing sermons at 4 a.m., right? It's good. It's worth it. Because I want to give my life to you. Me, like, serving my clients at the firm is worth it. As demanding and a reason why they are sometimes, it's worth it because I give, I'm called to give myself to them, to my family. And you have, God has not called you like he has called me in that sphere of life, but he has called you to a different sphere. My wife, for example, she's giving free piano lessons to one kid who's autistic and one kid who has like muscular issues. I don't think it's supposed to be like, like she can't bend her head like straight. 
So all she, she's like this kid, this five, four-year-old kid. She's this. She does this all, every day. My wife gives free piano lessons to them. But I was thinking about their parents, the kids with autism and the kid with that muscular problem. There's God, God's calling in their lives is to give of their life to their kids who will forever need their help. Maybe the, those, I think the autistic kid will never really get better. And maybe the kid with the muscular problem, maybe she'll always be this way. Maybe that's their God's call in life. But their parents are called to love them and serve them for the remainder of their days. Is it tiring? You bet it's tiring. But it's a good call because they're reflecting the generosity of Jesus Christ. A lot of you don't like where you are. I know you don't like where you are. Maybe you don't like your family situation. Maybe you don't like your work situation. Maybe, I don't know, I don't know why you're discontented, but you are. God oftentimes doesn't take you out of your discontented state. He wants you to stay in your discontented state to reflect his generosity. Maybe you're stuck at a job that he doesn't, that you don't like. I certainly don't like my job. I complain all the time. But the issue is not me being content with my job as much as showing his generosity to my clients and to my coworkers. Maybe you're married to someone who doesn't understand you, who doesn't get you, who doesn't meet your deepest needs. But maybe your call in life is not to have your needs satisfied as much as you showing showing generosity of Jesus Christ to your spouse. That's the call. Maybe your call in life is delivering pizza. Show generosity to to the people that you're delivering pizza to. Look, the other day, like last year, I took an Uber once from D.C. It was wonderful. Why? It it was like 40-some-odd, almost $50 Uber ride from D.C. to my house. But it was worth it. Why? Because the Uber driver was so charming. Oh, that's one charming Uber driver. So charming that I tipped him on top of the $50. Because he asked me about my day. And I go, oh. (laughs) Small, great, Big acts of generosity. It is your Christian calling, brothers and sisters. But once again, this life is only possible when you get your fill of the generous love of Christ. People love sermons that call people to give. We want to do something for God. Yeah, 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 I want to give. But this can only be a long-term lifestyle when you meet Christ, when you are filled with Christ every day. Do you want to be generous? Do you want great rewards in heaven? Get your fill with the generosity of Jesus Christ. He will provide for you. He will meet you, I promise. When you, when you pray to the Lord, Lord, let me see you, let me meet you through your word, he really will show up and he really will fill you up with him. Be filled with him so that you will be generous. Let us pray.
Do you like where you are? Do you like your job? Do you like the people in your life? Or are you just filled with discontent and struggles? I think it is a good, it is, God, you can pray to the Lord anything. Right? You can take it, you can ask him to take it away. Paul certainly asked God to take away his thorns. And so maybe God will take you out of the situation that you're in. But oftentimes he wants you to stay and be generous and be giving. Generous with your ears, generous with your mouth, generous with your funds, generous with your hands. Maybe in your life, in, this, in your sphere of life, you are God's grace to the people around you. If you have forgotten that, repent and ask the Lord to, fill, to make, fill your mind with an understanding of his generosity so that you will reflect his generosity to the people around you so that your reward in heaven will be great. Let's pray for these things and we'll continue.